0: Today's episode is brought to you by Femex, Radex, and Sovereign. You'll hear more about them later in the episode. Hey, everyone. This is your friend Bully, and you're listening to Bully Esquire. In this podcast, we chat with the movers and shakers from the worlds of finance, tech, crypto politics, law and media, and everything in between. Thanks for joining. Let's dive in. This podcast is powered by Blockworks, the fastest-growing crypto media company. Blockworks has 20 crypto and finance podcasts and I'm excited to be part of the network. Visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. I promise you won't be disappointed. Hey everyone, it's Bully. Thanks for joining. Super pumped about my guest today. It's Ricardo Sp- is it Spagny? Spagny. Spagny, but that's cool. Spagny is totally fine. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm off to a great start here. Um, We'll we'll just call you Fluffy Pony. How's that sound? (laughs) That works for me. Awesome. Um, He's best known for his role in Monero and obviously a big privacy advocate. So, Um, Oh, one thing I like to say to my listeners before we get started, of course, none of this is investment or financial advice. If you have any questions, please consult your own folks. This is just a conversation for your own information. So Fluffy Pony, thanks for joining. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm great. And thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, one privacy nut to another. So I'm excited to have you and hear about your, uh, your views and your work at Monero. So, um, you know, the first thing I like to do is just have my guests sort of go into how they got into crypto. I know you're a sort of a legend around crypto. You've been in it a long time. Um, how did you first sort of end up here? Great question, yeah. So um, I got
1: uh, involved with Bitcoin um, early 2011, like uh, May 2011. Uh, I read an article on Slashdots and it was about this Google engineer and how he'd uh, written a library for Bitcoin. And I sort of like, I mean, like I was peripherally aware that there was a thing called Bitcoin, but you know, like not really paid any attention to it. And that was kind of a trigger point because I was like, well, If a Google engineer takes it seriously, then maybe there's something of value there. Um, Anyway, that Google engineer ended up being Mike Hearn. So Mm -hmm. thanks, Mike, for introducing me to uh, crypto. Sorry for your rage quit. I'm sure you're kicking
0: yourself now Uh, that that it's years later and Bitcoin hasn't failed. Um. It's like (laughs) the guy who sold Apple stock at like 500 bucks or whatever in the 80s. (laughs) yeah exactly um and yeah that sort of that that was it got me hooked because
1: my initial thought was like oh this is nonsense you know i mean like like there's always claims about um cool like there's always technology and especially in in crypto and applied cryptography in particular there's always like oh we've got this new scheme that does these wonderful things and then when you dig into it you you start to see the uh, frazzled edges. So I, I was very skeptical, and my initial thoughts was were like, "Oh, there's there's no way this is Sybil resistant." I totally mis- uh, misunderstood how Nakamoto consensus worked um, because I was, and I think a lot of people um, that were in applied cryptography at the time, our brains sort of went to computers and and you know an individual computer on a network on a peer to peer network. Um, uh, maintain state like independently, and so if you just overpower enough computers you 're fine um, and obviously like I re- like I totally misunderstood how proof of work mining worked, and so I spent an inordinate amount of time and energy trying to figure out ways to civil attack and then even building stuff to civil attack um, bitcoin and uh, by introducing you know bad naughty nodes that uh, that were misbehaving um, and through that process of, of mucking around a little bit in the code and reading the white paper many times and, you know, um, really just lurking on forums, I started to get a, a much stronger understanding of it. Um, and that's normally, I mean, it's, that's, that's not unlike me to start off with like approaching something totally misreading it totally misunderstanding it uh going in like a bull bull to china shop thinking that i know better and then you know once i dig in going like oh
0: okay that's how it works (laughs) fair enough was was all the action back then i mean 2011 was that like just btc talk and those sorts of forums Was that where people were talking about this stuff
1: so uh, IRC was pretty big. I okay. mean, i like, you know, it's not, it's still, it's still, IRC still there. It's just like <laughs> the conversations quietened down a mm-hmm. lot. Um, but yeah, I mean, like the, the forum was of course, um, like quite, quite important. Uh, but, uh, but, but IRC, it was really
0: where everyone lived. Sure so you know i understand I, monero was launched in around 2014 uh, just walk us through sort of how you got from bitcoin in 2011 to being involved in um at least the the starting parts of monero
1: sure so yeah i mean like um like like as i progressed uh you know i was around and and by the way like what what's interesting is of course like um, when I first started and when I first started mucking around on, on Bitcoin talk, it wasn't actually Bitcoin talk. It was still like, it's still on uh, Bitcoin.org. Um, and it migrated, it only migrated to Bitcoin talk, uh, like a few months, you know, I don't know, towards the end of 2011, maybe a little bit earlier than that. <laughs> um, and, uh, and in that process, like Bitcoin, like, like IRC tended to be kind of have very high signal to noise ratio. Um and uh and the bitcoin forum and subsequently bitcoin talk was a little bit more um i mean even then there were some really really amazing discussions but you could see the slow degeneration uh, of the signal to noise ratio as people came in Mm -hmm. um and and i was around when like um when litecoin was was created, and even sort of prior to that, Tenebrick, the whole tenebricks and Fabrics thing, which like led to Litecoin being created. Um, I was around when Namecoin was created, so mm-hmm. you know, there's all this stuff that that happened, and it kind of um, led to me being very interested in. Um, in fact, I wasn't around when Namecoin was created. Namecoin was already around, <laughs> but uh, but it led to me being interested in alternative things that that could be done, because I did kind of view Bitcoin even then as being a little bit sacrosanct um, as a protocol, and uh, and and I could understand the desire to not um, want to change it, you know, to to not want to introduce lots of changes, but there were huge issues um on the privacy side you know and even then we were very aware of it and that's why there were things like anoncoin um that tried really hard to um to to have a focus on anonymity and and privacy um i mean it, it an uncoin kind of focused in the wrong area and didn't really go anywhere. Um, but yeah, there was lots of stuff that we um, like. I got involved with an uncoin as well quite early on, um, and there were there was lots of interesting stuff happening in that space. And then um, sort of early 2014, uh, I mean, I I was heavily involved in mining. I had this like flat packable um, GPU mining frame that I was shipping um, that I designed. And it was shipping really slowly. And I was getting trolled tr- like just a whole bunch on, on Bitcoin talk for being a scammer because of slow shipping and then like having to, having to wade through that. And this, uh, this, um, weird, uh, thing, project called Bitcoin, um, Appeared out of nowhere, and it, there was already a Bitcoin, but this was a different Bitcoin, and this was not based on on uh, it wasn't the Bitcoin protocol at all. Everything about it was odd, and uh, the white paper was a very interesting read. It was this crypto note white paper, which was you know all focused on, like let's take all of the good decisions from Bitcoin, and let's see if we can change some of the decisions. You know so they focused really on a few things. The first was privacy. Uh, The second was um, reducing or, or, um, you know, not having any of the opcodes in because of the uh, difficulty between, um, you know, having a scripting language and having transactions that sort of look very similar um, or indistinguishable. And then it also focused on things like uh, one CPU, one vote, you know, having that sort of um, fair, what they call like a fair mining um, thing, which, uh, you know, that's a, topic, a whole nother can of worms. Uh, but it was, what was really interesting was just this whole like, oh, wow, there's a protocol that is similar to Bitcoin. It, 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 uh, it inherits a lot of Bitcoin's um, good design decisions, but it also makes a couple of different design decisions. And that was super interesting to me because of its privacy focus.
0: So was Bitcoin is sort of the, the initial version of Monero or did, did Monero fork yeah. off of Bitcoin?
1: So it's a little bit more complex than that. Um, So, you know, sit down, grab a cup of coffee, let's (laughs) talk about it. (laughs) See, this history lesson is very important and
0: it's useful for a lot of folks who weren't around then. I mean, I'm a 2017 guy. A lot of us weren't around when all of this happened. So, you know, you've probably told this story a hundred times, but it's super, super interesting to us who may be a bit new to the space.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, it's also a very important story because it's a story in um, in in how uh, decentralized governance works. So basically what had happened is Bitcoin was actually, um, I mean, the, the technology was legit, the code was legit. Like it, it might've even started with a great deal of legitimacy and it got co-opted by um, a uh, what we now tend to believe is a Russian cyber criminal organization. And their idea was, we're gonna make a bunch of money from this. But they also knew that they couldn't launch, they didn't want to launch it as a project that just had like a 10% pre-mine. They really wanted to make a lot of money and they wanted to launch it with an 80% pre-mine. Now, of course you can't, I mean, even even in 2014, you couldn't go like, guys, we've created this new thing and we've written code from scratch. And uh, by the way, we own 80% of the tokens. Like that's that's never gonna fly. So what they did is they faked blockchain history by by basically like, you know, f- like fast mining at very low, um, uh, low difficulty rates and creating, uh, two years of fake blockchain history. And then they uh, had a whole bunch of sock puppets on Bitcoin talk that discovered this. And I'm doing air quotes, even though you can't see it, see right now. (laughs) And they discovered this Bitcoin and it, it, it had existed for two years on the dark web, but no one had heard about it. But of course it had been used on the dark web for two years. And they, 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 it was a little bit like Craig, Wright. You know, the more you dug into it, the more they try to create backstory and set up fake sites on tour that were like that accepted bytecoin and, you know, had like 2012 copyrights. And of course like anyone with half a brain cell looked at that and went like, yeah, that's, that's total nonsense. Like, um, even if it was true, an 80% pre mine, uh, or, or the fact is 80% has been issued. So that's just a non starter. But these guys were very clever. They, they didn't only want to make money from Bitcoin and from owning 80% of the, um, of the currency. Their view of things was, and, and it was totally true in 2013 and 2014, and, and even more true now, their view of things was in 2013, there was Bitcoin and then there was a like double digit percentage of uh, the rest of um, the mark of the, the total crypto market cap that was made up of bitcoin forks and so they figured they could control like a large percentage of this new protocol by owning those forks and so they they launched bitmonero i mean uh, uh, by, they had bitcoin of course and then they launched bitmonero as the first fork of bitcoin of the bitcoin code not of the bitcoin a uh, Bitcoin um, uh, 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 blockchain. So BitMonero was a fair relaunch of Bitcoin. That's what it started off as. And then they launched a bunch of like other weird ones. And I mean, just like super, super um, odd names, lots of like repeated things like the, um, the like they had the, the very similar designs for all of the, the websites um, it was just like a, um, uh, just like a, a, long string of garbage. Um, Was it just
0: like a cash yeah, grab you think like they're just totally, trying to put out a, okay.
1: Totally. So, I mean, it was, I mean, and look, it, don't get me wrong. It like, like it could have worked if it, it and it, it almost did, but they had like phantom coin and, um, like just so much garbage, uh, <laughs> ducknote notes um, <laughs> and uh, what is it quasar coin and dash coin not dash they had another one called dash coin um Bulberry was another one um uh, infinium 8 uh buddha coin which like was written in java it was the whole thing so they had all of these of these weird forks and i i, I guess like their their idea their thinking was like we can we can mine all of these at the outset, and we're just going to end up dominating it. It doesn't matter if any of them are successful, we'll end up dominating um now what they did and this is another sneaky thing that they did was they crippled the the mining code um in the software, so it was purposefully slow and this and this you know obviously they had the faster version um and even that it was open source. Like you have to remember, there was no like dedicated mining. There was no GPU mining. It was a new mining algorithm. So the only way to mine was solo mine on a full node. So on all of these forks, they were just, they were like eighty eighty five 85% of the hash rate. And BitMonero was different because it was the first fair relaunch and they were really struggling to maintain even double digit percentages of the the hash rate because there was so much interest from a very small, Community um, of miners who had spun up like um, uh, CPU heavy nodes on AWS, myself included, and we were all mining, and we knew what our combined hash rate was. Like, you know, we, all, we were all sitting on IRC and talking, and. You know, it was it was pretty clear that there was like at that point there were like only five or six miners that were dominant, um, and we literally had like 95 percent of the hash rate. So they were struggling, and to make matters worse, like within a few weeks, we we actually like one uh, one of the guys dug into the um, I mean it was very quick like within two weeks of of Monero launching, one of the guys saw in the source code that uh, there was like this this purposeful um, slow down by recalculating things in a loop and some very basic stuff like that, and they just like you know initially they passed it around to to the miners just so that we could validate that it was all it was correct and within twenty four hours they pushed it out publicly, and everyone had access to the the much faster miner and that was it the the scammers had like their their sort of you know eight percent or nine percent of the hash rate dropped to like nearly nothing um, and uh, and that was really interesting because it was. Um, it, they, they got crowded out and that's when it started getting really hairy because the guy that launched Monero, that created Monero, um, called thankful for today, you could see he wanted to still like, he wanted to now rest control of the, of, of this sort of wayward coin. And so he came up with this idea of let's be, let's be merge mined with Bitcoin because that way we, you know, we'd lose our edge. Mm-hmm. Because then it would, uh, you know, it wouldn't really matter. Even if we were mining, like 100, even if we we're 100% of the hash rate, they would still have 80% of, of Bitcoin's coins. So they would ultimately um, end up being able to do all sorts of things, and and influence uh, Monero unfairly. So, you know, he he's like, I'm going to make it merge mined with uh, Bitcoin, and this very small com- community, which could not have consisted of more than 50 people at the time. You know, bearing in mind this is like four, four or five weeks in, um, we're like, no, that's that's not going to work for us. And uh, he's like, okay, I will tell you what, let's put it to a vote. We'll let the miners vote by setting the the minor version in the block. And um, we're like, okay, cool. So he pushes out a new version of the code for all the miners to download and run. And uh, he sets the default to yes, the default vote. And we're like, dude that is, that's just, that's not cool. I mean, like, come on. So he's like, Oh, okay. My bad. Okay. I'll set the default to, to like abstain. And of course the voters overwhelmingly no. you know, like, of course we don't want to merge mind with Bitcoin. Bitcoin's an obvious scam. Why would we want to be merge mind? And he looks at the vote results after like a weekend or whatever it is. And he's like, well, you know what? Like, sorry, I, I, we're still going to be merge mind with Bitcoin, even though like all the miners say, no. And that was the point at which we realized this guy wasn't a benevolent dictator. He wasn't, um, he didn't actually want to play the game and something was super fishy. Um, and so myself and, uh, and six others forked um, the code base. And, uh, you know, we forked it from BitMonero to Monero. Um, and we were like, cool, well, you know, I mean, the two can live in parallel. It's just two implementations of the same code base. And, like, he tried to keep, like, BitMonero going for a while, um, his code base, but, like, he didn't really make any changes. Uh, and after a couple of months, he just disappeared. Um, you know, by June, he was gone. And, uh, and pretty much by Jan, tw- January 2015, um, the original BitMonero code base could no longer even sync um, with the network not because uh, it was incompatible, but just because like it loaded the entire blockchain into memory and that started crowding out anything with less than like eight gigs of, of RAM. So yeah, it was, um, it, was a, it was a coup, it was a takeover, um, a, hostile, a slightly hostile takeover. Um, but what's interesting is it's, it's always taught me that any, uh, any software developers who think they control the protocol, and this is true in Bitcoin, um, it's it 's true in some other projects it doesn 't matter how how um, how good they are they 're only allowed to maintain the project and to advance it as long as the community agrees with what they 're doing mm-hmm. um, and that 's a very true that 's true in open source unfortunately in um, in a lot of crypto projects there 's like there 's a bit of euro worship going on and so there tends to be less of that and more of well if you know um, Vitalik or Dan Larimer says like, it's all good and puts their rubber stamp on it, then it's all good. You know, we're never going to question it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we were great. We were kind of fortunate that early on in Monero's history, uh, Monero's founder was so dodgy that we were, it was pretty easy to just be like,
0: sorry, buddy, we're not going to follow you. We're going to do our own thing. Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, you alluded to this earlier, we're seeing a lot of the governance discussions now and sort of the DeFi land and, you know, there's governance tokens now and all sorts of efforts to uh, I guess automate and streamline governance. But it's interesting how some of these things just develop organically, you know, like you guys sitting in an IRC room being like, Oh, let's just fork it. Um, So, you know, uh, as much as you want, it's hard to, I guess, account for all the possible circumstances in the future. Yeah, uh. absolutely. And I mean, it's, uh, you
1: know, ultimately it doesn't matter how good a governance protocol is, y- you are always going to fall back on humans mm-hmm. and on, uh, on the fact that people can come together on whatever forum they choose. Um, and they, they can force things to go a certain way. We saw it with, um, with the uh, Bitcoin user activated soft fork, and we've seen it with Monero, um, it, it can happen. People can come together and they can make a decision.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's, let's talk sort of mechanics of Monero. It's obviously a privacy coin. Um, I just thought maybe you could spend a few minutes detailing how Monero kind of works under the hood and how it may be a little different than say like a Zcash or another privacy coin.
1: So Monero is a little bit different, um, to, to Bitcoin. It follows a lot of the same principles It has transaction outputs. Um, it has transaction inputs. Um, you know, it has proof of work. It has blocks like a lot of those same basic principles stand. Um, but it it basically focuses on five key areas, um, when it comes to privacy And, and I'll sort of go through them one at a time. The first is on, um, the transaction outputs in, uh, Bitcoin, they're sent to a Bitcoin address. You can go on a Block Explorer, you can see that address. In Monero, it uses something called um, dual-key stealth addresses, which means when you look at a Block Explorer, you see this destination that a transaction output goes to, but only the recipient can decode that and decrypt it and figure out that a transaction output is actually for them. And only they can spend it, no one else can spend it. The second thing is um, on amounts, we use something called confidential transactions or our our own uh, variant of it called Ring CT, which um, obscures transaction amounts. Um, so instead of the amount appearing on a Block Explorer, um, it's a thing called a commitment, which is a special cryptographic um, uh, representation of an amount that you can't actually decrypt into an amount. Uh, again, only the recipient will be able to decrypt that and go like, oh, okay, cool. I've been sent 0.5 Monero or whatever. Uh, Third thing is um, on transaction inputs. So again, with Bitcoin, you look at a block explorer and you can see that a transaction has uh, say two inputs and it comes from, this input comes from this old transaction and this other input comes from that old transaction. In Monero, each input has a ring signature and the ring signature makes it appear to come from that, 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 single input appears to come from a bunch of older transactions and you can't tell, there's no way to objectively tell um, which old transaction it came from. You just have to go, well, it's one of these 11 transactions or 12 transactions and I can't tell which one. And so, you know, whatever. And of course, you know, in a transaction that has say three inputs, then you're talking about like, you know, several rings and there's no correlation between them. Um, and, uh, obviously like the deep, you know, like, like maybe you start off with, if you're looking at just a single transaction, that seems like quite a small anonymity set, but you know, from that transaction, like if you had to follow the chain, the, the chain of transactions, it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger until you've got an, a, an anonymity set of literally millions and millions and millions of people or millions and millions of transactions, rather, over the last few years. Um, And then the fourth thing is a focus on uh, protecting the IP address uh, that first broadcasts a transaction. So there we support um, running a node on I2P and Tor. um, And, you know, we've supported that for quite some time. But we also have something called Dandelion++, um, which is a protocol originally designed for Bitcoin, uh, which also tries to obscure where a transaction um, is first broadcast from by randomly um, sending it out on like a stem and then a fluff phase. And I'm not going to go into details about that. It's complicated. Um, but that that's to try and uh, obscure where a transaction originates from um, on the network. And then the fifth thing is also uh, just a sort of more general thing. And that is a focus on being um, dominant uh, as a, as a, a privacy-enhancing cryptocurrency. And that's important because when you want to use any privacy tool, um, you want to get lost in the crowd. And if the crowd is only like 10 people, then you're not getting lost in anything. So you know, Monero being dominant, um, uh, and as a privacy enhancing cryptocurrency is a critical part of it being useful at all, because there are so many transactions over so many years, and there's so many people using it now that it's easy to get lost in a much larger crowd than any other privacy enhancing currency
0: currently. Sure. So like the anonymity set, is that the name yeah. of that.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, so there's a, an, an anonymity set is often, or privacy set is often um, a little bit misconstrued or, or misapplied. There's a lot of focus on what is the anonymity set for a single transaction. But I think that the more important thing is what is the anonymity set um, for the system as a whole, you know, because you're, again, you can have the, the world's most amazing anonymity technology. But if there are only 10 people using it, it doesn't actually matter how good it is. They could just go and arrest all 10 people. And there we go. That's
0: the end of that. I've used a lot of exchanges over the years, and they all seem to have their problems. From a lack of volume to bad buggy UI, or the exchange crashing when Bitcoin makes a big move. Until now, that is. Femex is a new derivatives and spot exchange launched last November by a group of former Morgan Stanley execs. Femex sports lightning fast transactions, the ability to handle many transactions at once, so you don't need to worry about it crashing during big moves, deep order books, and real verified volume. They have several different trading pairs and leverage options. They also have low trading fees and a killer ref plan. Be sure to use this URL for my welcome bonus, Femex, dot com slash A slash Bully. Again, femex.com slash a slash bully. Check it out. Today's episode is sponsored by Radix. In the current financial system, transactions are slow, inefficient, and expensive. And even suppose a decentralized finance platforms or DeFi for short. Like Ethereum, were not designed to support the number and speed of transactions necessary to scale DeFi. Ethereum's solution for this is sharding, which results in scalability at the cost of composability. Radix is a new cutting-edge Layer 1 platform for DeFi applications. Radix is specifically designed for DeFi, providing speed, security, and scalability. Radix uses its own next-generation consensus system called Cerberus, which has achieved over 1 million transactions per second in recent testing. Try doing that on Ethereum. Learn more at radixdlt.com. That's R-A-D-I-X-D-L-T dot Sovereign is a Bitcoin trading and lending platform, and one of the very first Bitcoin-native DeFi platforms. Start trading your Bitcoin today just by connecting your wallet. Earn interest on your Bitcoin and get paid for lending assets via the Sovereign decentralized exchange, always while maintaining control of your keys. Join today and get the first month's trading completely free. Just go to Sovereign, S O V R Y N dot app slash if you're one of the first hundred traders to use my link, you can claim a hundred dollar bonus. Go to sovereign, bullyhtml slash today and stay sovereign. You know, I've talked with a few guests now about this. There seems to be kind of a, a, a slow march towards um, outlawing or, you know, regulating privacy coins. You know, you have FATF and you have um, a lot of regional regulators like, I guess the Australians, the Japanese, even the United States regulators, to a certain extent. From from your point of view, being in this a long time, are you seeing a similar trend, or are you seeing regulators be more curious and open? What do you sort of sense as the the regulatory environment for privacy coins?
1: Yeah, I mean it's so. So I mean, I I think that regulators have uh, some of them have definitely been spun a yarn. Um, But but, I mean, these are the same regulators, and Australia is a great example of it, who think that encryption should be banned and there should be, quote unquote, fair encryption or whatever they call it, you know, where there's a backdoor that definitely won't be abused by anyone stalking (laughs) their ex-girlfriend. And and I think that that, that their misunderstanding of technology um, is a little bit frightening. But at the same time, you've got regulators um, who are... Uh, who are in in reasonably senior positions, like um, uh, a lot of the regulators in Wyoming, who not only have a deep understanding and respect for for Bitcoin, but also a deep understanding and respect for um, how important privacy is and uh, and the need for that. So I think it is it is a bit of a mixed bag. of course, historically, you've you've had uh, regulators in Germany, for example, who have been um, quite focused on on privacy. I think that's changing to some degree, but um, you know, it, it's not. Uh, there's there's certainly not a global regulatory push against privacy in general. I do think that there are some regulators that are of the belief that if we had no private communication whatsoever and no private financials whatsoever, that it would lead to a total um, reduction in crime and terrorism. Sadly, that's not the case. Um, And and it it will take education to Mm. convince them otherwise. And that's fine. There are organizations like Coin Center, um, and others who who have and the EFF, for example, who have taken on that mantle and are happy to explain to educators that um, you know that that being in absolute control of the, all of the flow of all information is not good for them and not good for anyone else.
0: Yeah, I I, I heard an interview you did recently where you noted that you know a hundred years ago it was the government's burden to you know get a warrant and discover if someone's doing something bad and then go to the courts and seek permission to review the you know papers or documents of a particular citizen and then from there they build their case but now it sort of seems to be backwards where the regulators and the authorities are saying well no we have the ability to look at everyone's data no matter what and then if we find something wrong we can bring a case but i mean you made this point on an earlier podcast and you said well you know, the Fourth Amendment exists. The, the the government has to show its burden before it can go out and confiscate the the private articles or information or data of its citizens. And it seems like that narrative has sort of flipped on its head in the last 20 years. And so I agree with you that education is important to remind people that, you know, it was it was fine a hundred years ago and yeah. it was fine 50 years ago. And, you know, maybe people ought to have privacy when it comes to all of their documents and data. And that's not a bad thing. It's just how, you know, our rights are founded as, as citizens of a free country.
1: Yeah. And I think, the you know, I mean, like, like I've been reading up recently on things like no-knock warrants. Um, which are, are interesting to me. I mean, I'm I'm not a I'm certainly not a lawyer, but of course I find I find the law interesting. I think there there are quite a few people in uh, in the crypto space that do, and even with no knock warrants, you know, it still requires um, a uh, a police officer or law enforcement officer to go to a judge and say like, this is the information we have, this is the. This is why we have a suspicion that this person is engaging in criminal activity and we want to go and kick down their door and, and, you know, not give them any warning. Um, and I, I can I look at that and I'm like, you know, like even at that extreme level, um, it's the, the police do not have free reign. They have to go and present their case. They need to go and, um, and, uh, and, and demonstrate, why they have this concern, and yet on the uh, on the the sort of financial side, it's just like, oh well, please feed us all the information, and then we'll make the banks determine whether yeah. you know whether, whether something bad has happened or whether they're suspicious about something bad, and then we'll just go and take action
0: on it without even validating it. Yeah, no, and uh, Peter Van Belkenberg actually pointed that out that you know sort of a lot of these suspicious activity reports and things required under the Bank Secrecy Act are warrantless, right? Like they're they're not requiring warrants to get this information, and that's the case and that's the regulatory regime we're faced with. But it's pretty surprising when you step back and really think about it to say, oh, actually, yeah, none of this is precipitated by a warrant. It's just you know financial information being shared without a person's consent. And, you know, I, I see the argument from regulators saying, well, you know, we live in a global world, um, terrorism and, you know, other illicit activities are a real problem. We're trying to crack down on those. So, you know, I'm, I'm also sympathetic to that point of view. It's just like this, this tension that exists that is being played out in real time is, is pretty fascinating. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, I like
1: I I, I really do sympathise with regulators and with law enforcement because it is a new world. It is frightening. At the same time, um, law enforcement has always been able to do its job and do its job well um, by using the tools at hand. You know, by using confidential informants and so on. And I feel like. Taking away, you know, I mean, the the classic example is like if we took away curtains from everyone's house and it was illegal to put up blinds or put curtains in your house, then of course we could see everything. We could see um, domestic abuse. We could see child abuse. You know, we could see all of these things um, and it would be great, you know, we'd we'd be able to stop every crime. But is that really a world that anyone wants to live in? You know, I mean, that, that level of 1984, George Orwell is
0: not a world I want to live in. Right. Right. No, I, I agree. There has to be some sort of balance between privacy and the ability for regulators and law enforcement to do their job. So, yeah. you know, saying, oh, well, everyone's entitled to 100 percent privacy all the time doesn't make much sense. And sort of the same extreme doesn't make much sense either. But striking that balance is, is interesting. I mean, one thing on sort of to continue on the regulator piece I found interesting recently and I'll be interested to hear your experience with them as somebody who is close to Monero, but I saw that the New York DFS approved Gemini to uh, basically allow outgoing shielded transactions on the Zcash network. Um, I I know you've probably worked a lot with exchanges over the years um, and a few have recently delisted Monero. What are your thoughts generally on like... uh, exchanges abilities to comply with their regulatory obligations but also protect the privacy of their users um, by, you know, offering customers privacy coins like Monero. Yeah, I mean it. So,
1: so I worked closely with Perkins Curie, um, uh on their regulatory white paper. It was, uh, you know, obviously our focus was was quite heavily on Monero um, and, uh, by extension, on Tari, um which is a, a project that I'm working on. But the that is that aside, I think the, the Perkins Curry white paper spoke to um, to privacy coins in general. To, to to privacy enhancing cryptocurrencies in general, and it really was, um, oh, hey, you can be compliant, and this is how you can be compliant. And so, you know, in discussions with um, with exchanges, I, I, uh, some of them are feeling pressure, and and I don't think it's pressure from regulators. I think it's pressure from banking partners, um, primarily. Although certainly some of them are also seeing pressure from regulators. Um, but ultimately, um, they, it's not. There's no, there's not a a, as much of a disconnect as um, exchanges think there is, and I haven't seen much in the way of actual regulation passed around privacy coins. Um, There's been some, but it's not, you know, I'm I'm not seeing like broad strokes like regulation in Europe and, um, you know, and and even in Australia focused on like privacy coins are bad, uh, but Bitcoin is good. There there seems to be a, a more general um, sense of caution towards um, privacy technology, um, and and I think that the where exchanges are delisting, um, a lot of them are doing so out of an abundance of caution, and um, I question I question why, uh, because I've seen for example like I had a discussion with an exchange uh, last year where they were like uh, we have to delist Monero because it's used. Um, uh, in crimes, and I pointed out that Bitcoin is used in more crimes than any other <laughs> cryptocurrency. So if you're going to delist Monero for that reason, well, you've got to delist Bitcoin too. And uh, never got a response. Um, you know, pushed them a bit, and just never got a response. They, they just didn't didn't even take me up on on answering that. Um, but I think that that's. You know the there is an abundance of caution from um, uh, from risk uh, specialists at exchanges. I understand why, but I also think that papers like the Perkins
0: Cooey paper will give them some degree of comfort that so it 's not a bad thing sure, yeah, no, I appreciate that let 's dive into the perkins cooey law or the the paper so for for my listeners who don 't know Perkins Cooey is a very well regarded white shoe. Amlaw 50 firm here in the United States, they have offices all over the world, uh, very well regarded. And so I understand you guys engage them to, you know, write To basically do an analysis on, um, the regulatory and legal considerations surrounding Monero. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So the, so, so the initial idea was, uh, I mean, we want, we didn't want it to be too, um, Uh, Like it wasn't Monero only. We wanted it to be a little bit broader than that because of course there there are concerns around um, Bitcoin and a lot of the the privacy enhancing um, tools like Samurai Wallet. There's concerns around Lightning. So we wanted it to be a little bit broader than that um, and and to speak to things. But yeah, we commissioned and and paid for that um, along with the help of some others.
0: Sure. And can can you just summarize the findings? I mean, it's a pretty... It's a it's a heavy document. I'm an attorney so I don't mind that, but I know some of my listeners might not want to read 40 pages. Are you able to kind of give the give the high notes or the cliff notes on what they found?
1: Sure, so their their primary focus was on um uh FATF and AML regulation um, you know, amongst some others, but that's you know really Uh, I think the anti-money laundering regulation was like the primary is the primary concern that a lot of um, exchanges have. So, so that was kind of the focus. Um, And uh, they looked at um, uh, at three main places, uh, the USA, Japan, and the UK, and they looked at at their various um, AML regulations of privacy coins. Um, also, w- what's nice is uh, in the states they looked at it, at the AML regulation both on um, a federal uh, and a state level. So they really looked at 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 all of that um, a, as a sort of survey of the landscape. They looked at the FATF uh, regulation as well, um, and then they then they said like, okay. Um, knowing that this exists and knowing, knowing that the, that the financial, that these financial uh, regulations exist, um, is it possible to work with, uh, uh, with privacy enhancing currencies um, without like stepping on them or, you know, uh, without um, uh, having to delist or, or, you know, having to, to deal with regulators freaking out. Um, And basically like the conclusion was, um, it is possible uh, you can um, apply uh, AML regulation at specific points in the process, um, and those those sort of uh, apex points um, are are where regulation can be applied to the greatest uh, good, um, because you know you don't want to also argue that like no regulation is uh, is is the way forward. Um, and uh, and that privacy coins are not inherently
0: anti-regulatory or anti-AML. Mm-hmm. So you you mentioned apex points. I think is what you mean basically on and off ramps for fiat currency. There, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, and I, you know, I've, I've mentioned this
1: before um, that I'm of the opinion that that is the the point at which regulation can happen. You, it's it's crazy to try and regulate regulate, um, like on chain that, that I think is, is silly. Um, at the same time, I think that it's, it would, it would be beneficial for exchanges to just view this like cash. You know, if someone made, if if someone took their deposit address, like their bank account address from the, the exchange that they're using, and they went and deposited $10,000 in cash, what would happen I mean, the, they would, of course, the bank might file an SAR. Um, the exchange might ask for source of funds. Like, I mean, there's things that would happen, but you wouldn't immediately go like, this person's put $10,000 worth of cash in. We're going to suspend his account and never allow him to use it again, mm-hmm. unless he's not answering answering the questions, you know? So it's, I, I feel like there's a there's a path forward. It just seems to me that exchanges... Um, exchanges want the same thing that they have with Bitcoin. And I guess with Ethereum and and with many other currencies, which is they plug into Chainalysis or CypherTrace or whoever. And when a transaction comes in, then there's an automatic call to that chain analytics company's API. And that comes back and says, this transaction is... Uh, whatever, it's 87 out of 100. And they go, cool, that's above our risk threshold. And we're just going to accept it. Or it goes like, oh, this transaction is 10 out of 100. And then they just freeze the person's account and shut them down and return the funds and never speak to them again. Mm -hmm. And and I feel like that is like, that is the
0: laziest approach um, that they could possibly take. And it's sort of the antithesis of what cryptocurrency means at its core. And I don't want to get too mushy here, but right. Like the idea is decentralized finance and that like people can be part of a system, even if they don't have permission, it's like permissionless to some extent. And yeah, again, that's probably a little frightening to regulators, but on the other hand, like, you know, I'd make the case that most people are entitled to these types of financial products and services and to, just cut them out because you get a bad API score is a little troubling. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I mean, you you know, I sort of like in my mind, I liken it to like if someone walked into a bank and said, "I'd like to open a bank account." And you know, just because you didn't like the 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 fact that he had a beard, you were like, mm-hmm. did "You denied him that." We would be up in arms about that, and and now it's sort of taken to to a degree where like a transaction is viewed as good or bad because some other computer said so.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> right, right, yeah, that's a little scary because like, who's, how is chain analytics coming up with that score, right?
1: 100%, wow. you know, and like, and and again, like you said earlier, it's warrantless. It's not mm-hmm. like Chainalysis has gone to a judge and said, like, this is how we've determined that this address um, uh, or this transaction, or this, this address is bad and any withdrawal from it is bad. Of course, that does happen as well. You know, I mean, you've got the, um, uh, you, you actually have stuff that is, uh, that, that is absolutely like not a good idea to touch um, in crypto. And, uh, and, and that I understand, you know, no problem. If it appears on some sort of government list or whatever publicly, mm-hmm. then I have, I have no problem with exchanges going like, we're not going to accept deposits, um, uh, from this, yeah. but I, you know, I think beyond that, um, it's, it's just kind of, it's kind of frightening that they've just created this, uh, this collection of data that has, you know, all sorts of weird, um, weird metadata that no one has actually had any view of
0: Mm -hmm. yeah no i i agree with you and you're right that they're there are already those processes in place though, right? Like the department of treasury has a white or a, a list of like bank accounts, for example, of known. Yeah, the the,
1: the OFAC, uh, exactly blacklist OFAC is the one I was right. thinking of. Yeah. And, the, there, and by the way, there's an, there's crypto addresses on mm-hmm. the OFAC blacklist.
0: Yep. Yep. And so, yeah, obviously like those should be complied with and, you know, but I agree that like a third party saying, well, you know, we think this person's in like a, a poor area of the world or something that's not otherwise prohibited to transact with, like that's starting to get to a little suspect, but yeah, no, I, and I agree with you. I think the endpoints seem like a good place to focus on regulating because if money's going back and forth within this closed system um, you know, if I'm sending Monero to you and you're sending it to me, there doesn't necessarily need to be data and a record of that. What there should be a record of is if you send money to me and I go try to cash it out in the, you know, USD, then that's where like the KYC AML process should happen. I mean, that makes more sense to me because then you can have both the regulatory, uh, you know, impact of making sure that you know your customer well, having transactional privacy within this sort of closed bordered system.
1: Yeah, and and I don't. I mean, I don't fundamentally disagree with the right, the an exchange's rights to say, hey, listen, you sent money to us. Can you please explain where you got it from? You know, like some sort of source of funds um, uh, clarification. I don't think that there's there's you know, I mean, and and that's not to say that it should always be like that. But I think right now, that's totally fine. the mm-hmm. The real question is, um, you know, why why they're choosing to instead. Um, just take a, a totally fearful approach, which is deeply worrying.
0: Yeah. And again, if you look at the existing financial system, we already have mechanisms in place to deal with this. Like if I wire you a hundred thousand dollars there, you, you know, no one can view that, right? That's private. Um, and that data is encrypted for, for a good reason, because no one needs to know that I sent you a hundred grand, but then if you, if it ends up in your bank account and you go to get, get it out of your bank account, there may be questions that the bank has or the exchange has. So it's it, it, it's surprising to me that so many people in crypto are like, oh, no, we need to see that wire information. We need to see because we can see I sent you 100,000 Bitcoin. I need to be able to see I sent you 100,000 Monero. And just because like Bitcoin is perfectly transparent doesn't mean that that's A, a good idea, or B, it should be applied to every other cryptocurrency. Yeah, 100%. And that is, I, I agree with
1: you. I mean, it is a little bit, uh, it's a little bit disconcerting that, uh, that there seems to be a general um, approach from many crypto people um, to say like oh, but that's totally fine, you know, like mm-hmm. we like embra- embracing
0: that regulation when it's obviously net uh, net negative, at least mm-hmm. from my perspective. What do you you know? One one argument I see from a lot of Bitcoiners is that well, Bitcoin is transparent so we can audit the supply. We need to be in full control of the audibility. So we're sacrificing privacy in exchange for audibility, and then we'll go and we'll build second layer solutions like lightning over top of it. Um, Do you have any sort of reaction to that as a first layer protocol that has privacy built in on, on the base layer? Yeah.
1: So I, I
0: I actually gave a talk on this um, uh, recently
1: um, and my observation is well, I mean, there are a couple of things and, and I'd encourage anyone who really wants to dig into this to go and, and watch that talk. Um I gave it at the the ZK privacy um conference and there's a recording. That was the first talk up, so it's easy to find. Um and and I think the my my argument against it and, and the argument was not a Monero I mean my my talk was not Monero versus um Bitcoin at all. It was um you know, why base layer privacy is not a bad thing and why the the supply auditability arguments are garbage. Um, and I think the, the, the primary, uh, my primary thinking around this is firstly, um, that the idea that we need to be able to visually um, see things, see the amounts on a block explorer and then add them up on our Texas um, instruments calculator, pocket calculator, is just, so weird to me because we accept all sorts of other things Um, like all the cryptography in bitcoin we have no problem accepting that it just works with magic and someone else has checked it but then the minute cryptography comes into um, into amounts on uh, on a cryptocurrency we go oh well sure you know supply auditability i I need to be able to validate it myself okay so already we're starting off on a on an idiotic foot because if that's the case why aren't you Pulling out your te- your Texas Instruments pocket calculator and calculating your public key from your private key, because you know that's the only way you can validate it yourself. But no one's doing that. So, so you know, I mean, we we do accept that there's crypt- applied cryptography magic that happens, and we're fine with it. And so, so I think let's you know let's let's accept that like it can happen. Um, on the supply side, and we can still have a reasonable degree of confidence. So that's mm-hmm. the first thing. The second thing, and this is, this is also key is um, there have been supply audit auditability problems on Bitcoin. Um, there was uh, the 2019 um, bug. And of course there was the uh, the, the old bug from what is a 2010 um, or so when uh, there were 81 billion Bitcoin that were created in a transaction. And of course, those were detected and uh, they were fixed, um, you know, and there was, there was no consequence, but now there could um, in theory, be um, like the 2019 uh, CVE is a great example of a bug in Bitcoin, a supply auditability bug where there could have been a double spend um, on the Bitcoin network. And if that had happened and it had taken a little bit of time to react, then what would we have done? You know, I mean, if it was a lot, if there were a, a series of large amounts that were double spent and the, and we then reacted afterwards, I, my, my feeling is it would have been, there would have been too much damage. You know, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have been able to unwind it because now you're going to affect people downstream who've received money. Um, you might you're going to affect exchanges who've traded it out into to other currencies, um, and they would lose money, and uh, the confidence in in Bitcoin as a financial system would be severely damaged. Um, and so, if I look at it from that perspective, like the the risk is not. Um, could a supply auditability problem exist? The risk is, could a supply audit- auditability problem exist and not get fixed before it's abused? Because once it's abused, if it's abused in the right way, it can literally destroy um, the entire, uh, the economic um, constraints of, of that system. And that that is true for Bitcoin. It's true for Monero. It's true for Zcash. It's true for Ethereum. It's true for everything. Mm-hmm. And so, so we... The only thing we can really do is hope that through a sufficient number of eyes on the code, we'll have a sound, um, a, a sound system. That's really all we can do.
0: So uh, I suppose the counter argument to that, just playing devil's advocate would be, well, we, all, we were able to find that quickly on the Bitcoin network because everything's transparent, but on Monero or Zcash or another privacy-based cryptocurrency, maybe we wouldn't even know it happened at all. But I guess your point is, no, the developers are watching and they'd be able to identify this.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's exactly it. And I think the, um, the, the important thing is um, the, the, 20, sorry, the 2018 CV um, is, uh, no, it wasn't 2018, it's 2019 CV. But the, the important thing is that, that Bitcoin um, uh, double spend bug existed in the code for a long time. Um, it, it existed from Bitcoin, like 0.15, um, all the way through to, uh, yeah, sorry, it was 2018. So all the way through to like 0.17. So it existed for several years. Um, and, and I think without being detected and without being abused. So thankfully it wasn't abused. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Like the, The the fix is not, well, if it gets abused, then we'll detect it quickly and then we'll be able to react. The fix is more eyes on the code, safe cryptography, not newfangled moon math. um, And and that's sort of the best we can hope for.
0: Sure. Yeah. No. And I, I take your point. Like it's going to exist no matter what, because these are systems that are created by humans. And, you know, I don't think any code is perfect. So, Yeah, I mean, we just do the best we can and hope that something like that doesn't happen. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, we're about out of time. I know you mentioned uh, maybe 10 minutes or so ago about a new project you're working on. Is it Tari? Yes, yeah. Can you talk about that for a little bit?
1: Sure. So Tari is a decentralized assets protocol. So um, basically the idea is... um, we're of the belief that um, that digital assets are interesting. So anything that lives its life digitally um, is is a, it can be a digital asset. So things like obviously, you know, NFTs are are the one that everyone goes to, but there are others. There's loyalty points. Um, there's in-game assets, in-game token tokens. There's tickets. Um, there's security tokens. There's uh, DRM tokens. Uh, licenses can be expressed as tokens you know there 's all this stuff that uh, that that can be done as a digital asset um, and and we find that particularly interesting so you know the idea at tari labs is we 're building we 're one of the big contributors to the Tari project, which is a decentralized assets protocol that 's b- built on top of monero so it 's merge mined with monero um, and uh, it 's architected as a merge mined side chain of monero and that 's sort of um like where we where we believe. Uh, things might go in the future and where we find, find it uh, particularly interesting. I, I don't think that we will live in a world with hundreds or thousands of blockchains, um, but I do think we'll live in a world with hundreds and thousands of tokens and digital assets. And if those can live on a, uh, on, on decentralized
0: protocols instead of living um, in walled gardens, I think all the better. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, that's, uh, that's really exciting. So people can find more out about that project. Is it, um, it's tari.com, right? Yeah, tari.com, T-A-R-I. Awesome. And you are at Fluffy Pony on Twitter, right? That's the one. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining. We're out of time. I, I wish I had more because I'd probably ask you a th- four hours worth more questions but at, yeah, just at. when we were getting into it i know i know uh but yeah no i i appreciate you coming on and i i appreciate your time and um you know look forward to see what you build at tari cool thanks so much hey everyone thanks for listening new episodes go live every wednesday at 7 a.m eastern links to our apple and spotify channels are in the show notes you can also follow me on twitter at bully esq to continue the conversation See you next week.